This episode is sponsored by The Climate Pledge from Amazon. Take a leadership position on climate change and join a coalition of businesses driving towards a bold commitment of net zero carbon by 2040. Learn more about becoming a signatory at theclimatepledge.com. And this episode is also sponsored by MCE, the local electricity provider for 34 San Francisco Bay Area communities, offering clean energy, community benefits, and the power of choice for more than 10 years. For more information, visit mcecleanenergy.org. From Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Heather Clancy filling in from northern New Jersey for the vacationing Joel McCower. On this week's edition, resilience lessons learned from a devastating Oregon wildfire. Five things you should know about California's ban on new sales of gasoline-powered cars after 2035. And why alternative meat companies should be thinking more about food allergies and insensitivities. That's just a taste of the lineup on this week's Green Biz 350. It's October 2nd, 2020. Welcome to Green Biz 350. Joining me this week as co-host is Katie Fernbacher, Green Biz Senior Writer and Analyst for Transportation and Mobility. Katie, hey, how are you doing? Hi, Heather. I'm good. How are you? I'm okay. So it's October. It is. Oh my gosh. It's already here. It's the fall. <laughs> it's here. Yeah. It's the fall. Halloween is later this month. And so is Dun 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 Verge 20. Yes. Our first huge, huge, huge online edition of this event. And I know you're busy with the program. Can you give us some hints about who you got lined up for, for the sessions? Yes, I am so excited about Verge Transport this year. Um, obviously, we're doing an all-virtual program, um, but I'm looking at some really fascinating trends around transportation. Um, obviously, the electrification of transportation is one of the biggest trends that's happening right now. And so we're going to be talking to um, the top greenest fleets. So we're going to be talking to Christine Weydig from Port Authority, New York and New Jersey. We're going to be talking to Philip Saunders, City of Seattle's um, Green Manager Program. Um, we're going to talk to um, Anheuser-Busch InBev, um, Angie Slaughter, who's, who's um, helping convert their fleet uh, to zero emissions. Um, let's see, what else have we got? Um, I'm going to be doing an interview with Portland General Electric CEO Maria Pope, which I'm really excited about. Um, we just confirmed Amazon's Ross Ricci, who's um, the head of their um, logistics and fleet program, which is really exciting. Um, yeah. And then we're also looking at some other um, uh, outside of electrification. We're looking at some other trends like um, the path forward to sustainable aviation. Um, so a lot of interesting stuff going on in transportation this year. Wow. And I think I, 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 I hear tell that you have a list that you're going to be publishing related to some of the, the companies that you're looking at right now with fleet strategies. Can you tell me about that? Yes. So um, over the past uh, year and a half, I've been working hard to uh, track and investigate um, some of the leading fleets 
who are going zero emissions. And so that's both uh, public government and city fleets, but also, you know, private fleets, uh, big, big corporations, you know, like an Amazon or a Walmart. And, um, and so I have been putting together a list of the top 25 sustainable fleets and I'm going to be releasing that the week before Verge um, and we'll have some of the list winners speaking at Verge and um, I'm, I'm really excited about this because I think this is a huge trend that you know cities and governments and companies are really waking up to the fact that they need to decarbonize transportation and they need to specifically start transitioning their fleet to low and zero emissions and so this is kind of I think a turning point um, for for this industry. And so I'm really excited to uh, unveil that list the week before Verge. Awesome. I look forward to editing that list. I also look forward to uh, catching some of the sessions at Verge uh, and, and, and getting some stories written about them. But before we do that, let's look back at this week in review. All right, so I have the transportation analyst here on the podcast with me, so I got to do a transportation story. And the one that I I wanted to uh, ask about, Katie, was, of course, your column this this week on the California gasoline car sales ban. So, okay, reading that, if I'm like a a driver that loves like my, my car and I have an old maybe classic car, I'm like, what? I can't have my car anymore? What is this? What is this? What is this about? Yeah, it's a little bit shocking. Um, it is historic. It's the first um, in the U.S. to do this at a state level. So um, last week, uh, California Governor Gavin Newsom signed an executive order that says um, in the next 15 years, by 2035, all new car sales will need to be zero emission vehicles. So that doesn't necessarily have to be electric, but most likely those will be electric. There's about 2 million vehicles sold every year in California. It's a huge market. And so within the next 15 years, those new cars would have to be zero emission vehicles. And so that means that if you own a gas powered vehicle now, you don't need to get rid of it. No one is gonna come and take it away from you. You can still continue to drive it. It's just if you're going to purchase a new vehicle after 2035, it's going to have to be zero emissions. So this was an executive order, as you mentioned. Do we think there's going to be legal challenges? Uh, Yes, for sure. Um, Even after I published this column, the EPA administrator, Andrew Wheeler, sent a note to Gavin Newsom, a letter saying, you know, essentially California would need to have a waiver to implement this and that um, he uh, is suspect that California's grid would be able to handle an influx of electric vehicles like this. And so, I mean, California and the EPA have been had a very contentious relationship throughout the Trump administration. So it's not a new area for California to go to battle with the Trump administration. And they will for sure go to battle over this executive order. Okay, well, thanks for surfacing it for our readers. I'd like to surface another story. Uh, we're going to move on to cities, but another, I know you think a lot about the transportation footprint in cities. And this particular piece fascinated me because I never really thought about how um, uh, consum- you know, the difference between consumption-based emissions versus production-based emissions. And the idea that um, many cities basically are kind of outsourcing their emissions by by really having service-based economies, right? And so 
we think about restaurants and, and, and financial services firms and so forth, but there's not a lot of industry. Um, so even though cities have a big footprint from their buildings, that actually might not be telling the whole story. So I'm, I'm just curious um, what you thought about this piece, anything that particularly jumped out for you, Katie? Yeah, I thought it was really interesting. I also hadn't thought um, about produ- production versus consumption-based emissions before, so I um, I thought it was really interesting that this article brought that to light. Um, I think it's something that's quite common for you know both companies and regions that are prosperous to um, kind of have the luxury to shift their emissions around. You know, so a state can import clean energy from a, from another region, or a, you know, a state that has different options or companies. You know, they have the luxury of being able to choose clean energy. Or, or do things like that when when it's not necessarily something that a company or a region that um, you know was strapped uh, w- would be able to do. So I thought that was that was something that's definitely interesting that this article brought to light. Yeah. So it's the whole idea of burden shifting. Um, it also brings into more importance the idea of circular cities where you you are they are actually using more of their own resources and recirculating them. Obviously, but a great. Uh, a thought piece by one of our friends at Metabolic, Aaron Kennedy, and I encourage you to all to take a read on that one. The final piece I want to go to, to this week is one that really spoke to me. Um, it's it's on alternative meats, and you're probably like, oh, okay, and all the, another alternative meat story. But this one focuses on the idea that the alternative meat providers need to think a lot more about food allergies and um, insensitivities. I this spoke to me because I'm dealing with um, a migraine issue and I have, there's a certain diet you have to follow that, that, that is focused on and basically weeding out inflammatory ingredients. And as someone on that diet, I've, I've been also, of course, interested in reducing my, my footprint. And, but many of the ingredients like soy and nuts and, um, and legumes that are, predominant in many of the plant-based meat alternatives are things I can't eat. So this is just a fascinating story to me about why this is going to become a bigger issue. If you think about all the people that have food issues um, and allergies and, and asthma and so forth, it just, it's a big deal, I think. Yeah. I think it also brings to light that, um, you know, just the processed nature of, of a lot of the alternative meats and proteins, um, you know, where, you know, obviously it's easier to identify what is in something when it's a, a whole food, um, you know, because you you don't need to sift through all the ingredients. But when they're, when these food sources are so processed, like these alternative meats are, um, it kind of raises questions about, you know, the actual healthy nature of them. Yep, definitely something, uh, especially given the nature of, of the food allergy um, problems in in the United States and, and other areas around the world, um, I think I think that uh, is something we should be following very closely. I know that uh, you've been looking at and, and reviewing some of the the session recordings from Climate Week, uh, especially, obviously, with the, an eye and ear to the transportation sessions, what's got your attention? Yeah, so I thought um, one thing in particular last week was was really interesting to me. The climate group 
brought together um, a variety of speakers around their EV100 program, which is an interesting program. It's newer than the um, RE100 program, which is much larger. And um, but the EV100 program has close to 90 members now. So those are those are big companies, whether that's you know Inca Group or IKEA as we know it. Um, uh, companies like like Lyft recently joined um, Lime Scooter Company. So. These are these are corporations that have um, agreed to move towards um, electric vehicles for their fleets, but also to build out charging infrastructure and do other things to help their employees embrace electric vehicles. And so the climate group um, brought together several speakers, which I thought, you know, really shone a light on this corporate trend um, of fleet electrification. Um, and one of those was um, Inca Group's chief sustainability officer, Pia Heidenmark Cook. I thought it was really interesting that kind of she gave some advice for companies that are just starting out on their journey and how they could um, take the first step to adopt electric vehicles. First of all, there's no one silver bullet answer. I think every company is quite unique and then we sit, you sit with different needs. So I would say the starting point would be to sit down with the business leaders to understand the situation. Where are you today? Uh, and then I would say break up the elephant because you, you can't reach a 100% goal um, right away in, in all markets at the same time. So I, I think what we've done with going for the five cities uh, and setting intermediate goals uh, and take the learnings. And then I truly agree with what has been said as well, that there's a lot of learning, be it India or China or the US or Europe, where we can transfer that learning. So having starting out um, breaking it up uh, having the business in the lead and then uh, taking the learnings and, and constantly evolving and then in addition to uh, Pia from Inca Group there's also um, a really nice quote from Andy Wales who's the BT Group's chief digital impacts and sustainability officer and BT Group is a huge uh, UK based uh, telecom operator um, and they have a fleet of 30,000 vehicles and so they've pledged to move those vehicles towards zero emission um, and essentially a lot of those vehicles are used by their engineers um, and so their BT Group's big challenge now is to um, figure out how to get um, electric vehicle infrastructure out to the homes of those engineers and how to do that in an economical way. So this is what Andy Wales had to say about that. Well, first, let me say how important it is for major British businesses like BT that the UK government and the UK overall has taken such a strong position on uh, climate for, for decades, of course, but in particular, the net zero commitment that was made for 2050. Um, BT has a net zero target uh, we announced about two years ago now for 2045. And we've also then extended that commitment to our suppliers, which is about two thirds of our total footprint emissions, um, asking them to set the same commitment or faster. Um, and BT is now, you know, has made quite significant steps. We're 100% renewable power in the UK and we buy about 1% of UK power. And so now our biggest challenge, is, as you say, is transport. Um, the same as the UK's biggest challenge is now transport. And so we think it's, you know, quite a big challenge for uh, for the UK and for BT. And that's in particular because we've got one of the UK's largest commercial fleets, about 30,000 vehicles, mainly diesel. And they tend to uh, sleep outside our engineers' homes, you know, vehicles all over the UK, outside people's houses, some in terraces, some in detached houses, some in flats. And so the challenge of, of getting the infrastructure and the capability um, 
to get that, you know, to get those vehicles charged as we as we switch to electric vans is the is BT's challenge as much as it is the UK's challenge. And so we're delighted to engage with the UK government, to engage with the minister, uh, to understand how we can work together to implement what is what is known technology, but not that easy necessarily to implement uh, in a widespread way fast um, across the UK. It is not lost on me, Katie, that both of those are companies that are based in Europe. So I'm curious, like, do you have a read on that? Was that is that just a coincidence or is there a lot of good innovation going on outside the US? Um, you're correct. Uh, actually, Europe, um, the countries in Europe are leading the charge when it comes to adopting electric vehicles, both, both through policies, um, but also companies um, are being much more aggressive than in the US. Um, so China is taking a, a very aggressive approach. And then uh, countries like the UK, uh, Germany um, are kind of leading in the world. The US, you know, has a lot of interesting stuff going on. You know, we've got companies like Tesla, we've got homegrown technology and engineering. Um, but when, when it comes to the total volume that's going to be moving of electric vehicles, Europe is where it's at. From my perch in New Jersey, it's been difficult to comprehend the magnitude of the wildfires in California and Oregon. But for one member of the GreenBiz team, the recent events are very personal. Sarah Golden, GreenBiz Senior Energy Analyst and Chair of the Verge Energy Conference, grew up in Oregon, close to the cities of Phoenix and Talent, which have been devastated. She's close both to this tragedy as well as the response. Her father, Jeff Golden, is the state senator for the district in which these towns are located. Sarah, thanks for joining us today on Green Biz 350. It's good to be here. Thanks, Heather. First, I want to say how sorry I am that this is so close to home for you. Can you share a, a brief summary about the human and economic toll of this disaster? Yeah, and thanks for that. Um, it... It really is a difficult time. It's very heavy. The fire, which is known as the Almeida fire, was um, small in terms of acreage, but it actually traveled through these really densely populated areas. It started just north in Ashland, um, which is the town I grew up in, and then blew straight up through the valley and completely decimated the towns of Talent and Phoenix. And it was really, you know, due to these incredibly dry conditions. It's been a very dry year. But then there's also these historic winds. There are these sustained 30 miles per hour winds that just pushed the fire through so quickly. So within a matter of hours, the fire consumed more than 2,500 residential structures, many of which were actually multifamily units. So the number of homes lost are much higher than that. And it also wiped out more than 100 businesses. And just to put that in perspective, the population of these two towns together are somewhere in the neighborhood of 11,000. I saw one staff that said 80% of elementary school kids in Phoenix and 50% of elementary school kids in Talent are homeless because of this fire. Of course, you and I, we go to the questions, right? You know, what's next? What does this mean? And in the days after the fire, you spoke with your father about the causes, the, the role of climate change in exacerbating the damage, and the anticipated response. We're going to play that segment in a moment, but can you give us some context for that conversation? Yeah, absolutely. It, 
is something that I hear about a lot living on the West Coast, the potential for fires to devastate communities. And it feels so different when you have a connection to that place. And I know that my dad, he's taking this incredibly seriously. I think that it feels even more different when it's your district, when you're the state senator. Also for context, my dad is chair of the state's Environmental and Natural Resource Committee, which is responsible for wildfire reduction and response. So also from a professional point of view, he's really been thinking about how can we do better in this regard. So in the conversation here, we're also gonna be talking about how communities need to be better prepared and what we've learned from this incredibly fast moving fire about how to improve our response system. To tee up the interview, it starts with my dad talking about what the experience was like when the fire broke out, and then we move on to some of the other questions. A couple of weeks ago, really after an evening of very unusual winds, really intense, severe winds that gusted steadily and kept changing directions, it was a different kind of weather pattern, a grass fire started as it happens about a half a mile from my house and the house that you grew up in, in North Ashland. The wind was to the north-northwest really severe and just blew the fire out beyond anyone's control and up a kind of a channel of Bear Creek, the Bear Creek Corridor, and over the next few hours destroyed Talent of Phoenix, roughly half of the residences in, in the two areas. In, in such a vicious and fast-moving manner. And the, a fire line stopped it uh, in the south edge of Medford, which of course is our major city. And the biggest damage is along the Highway 99 corridor where a string of mobile home parks that housed a variety of people, but among them were the, uh, some of the most economically challenged people in the valley, very, very large portion of the Latinx community was completely destroyed. I mean, just rubble and twisted metal that spoke to the speed and heat of the fire, which was really extraordinary. And it's worth noting that there was no forest in this fire. This is not a forest fire. Of course, the attention is properly on California and all the forest fires, and there are or have been in the last week or two about a dozen major fires in Oregon. And they're very different fires from one another, um, which means the remedy and the action plan to, in the future is really complex and multifaceted. In this case, um, really, the driving factor almost exclusively was climate change. And, you know, whatever vegetation there was is extraordinarily dry, same as in the forest. But this wind that I described earlier, this very um, gusty, sustained, kind of chaotic wind, which was a, was an unusual episode. And, you know, I don't, I, I can't exactly tie it to climate change, but it's part of the climate chaos that we're experiencing. So we can, you know, we're, we have a lot of initiatives in Oregon around fuel reduction, and, um, you know, selective logging and thinning and a number of things. And, of course, a lot on around fire suppression. But none of that really applied to this particular fire. 
Yeah, and I find that so interesting because living on the West Coast, I'm no stranger to the impacts of wildfires. And so much of the conversation over the last little bit has been this conversation of what is climate change versus what is poor forest management. And of course, there's a lot of work we need to be doing in the forest. But like you mentioned, there was no forest involved in this. What does this mean for Oregon's preparedness for fires in the future? What lessons are you learning from this moment? It's a little early to answer that. We're still kind of trying to figure it out. There were some failures in the alert system that clearly have to be addressed. People, The people who had opted into a tech system were getting warnings but the emergency broadcast system that plays on radio and television, and I guess the internet now, uh, didn't function, and we're not clear on what that was like. We need more evacuation planning. You know, it, it's hard to get uh, a lot of people evacuated in a short period of time. So we have a lot of work to do on community preparedness, warning systems, uh, helping people prepare themselves to evacuate at virtually any time, evacuation routes, and then the whole suite of measures that retard the spread of fire in uh, urbanized areas around defensible space around structures, uh, hardening of homes with um, changing building codes, uh, changing zoning in some cases. That's all important. We're, we're, we're going to be focusing more on that. That was on our plate in the last couple of years as we worked on a comprehensive wildfire policy, but it's, it's zoomed to the top now. And what's, what will suffer, in at least on the state level, in a couple of years to come is um, vegetation management and fuel reduction just because it's expensive and we're so low on resources right now. And is that a consequence of the amount the state has spent with COVID efforts? Yeah, we were on our back, as are most states, with our COVID efforts. We were, this coming biennium, we do a biennial budget. Um, it's projected we're going to have to cut about $4 billion out of a $12 billion general fund or discretionary fund. And it's going to be just crippling. That's before the fire costs and the fire problems. So we're, um, we have a very uncertain future. Do you think with all of the scientific consensus that this wildfire season is juiced by climate change, it may be easier to finally pass a climate bill in Oregon? I'd like to say yes. There's no evidence for that yet. The public statements that Republicans talking about the wildfires are making say, uh, all the ones that I've seen, say the problem is environmentalists caused a drastic reduction in timber harvest in the 1990s and won't let salvage logging happen after a fire, resulting in this massive fuel buildup that is causing these catastrophic fires. So that's what's so interesting to me about the Almeida fire in that it has nothing to do with the forests. This never touched the forest. Do you think that's a data point that will help within these conversations? Uh, I don't want to say no. I'm, I've, I have mentioned a couple times, others will too. And we have on the order of a dozen forest fires in Oregon. It's 
you know, probably proportionate to the size of the states were having a similar fire season to California. And several of those fires, most of them, are in more of the classic mode of forest fires and are, and are being fueled by accumulated forest fuels. So I don't know if we're considered an anomaly. As I say, the, you know, the real factor in, in this fire in my district was the winds. As you know, I was in Ashland when these fires broke out and was there for some of that, um, the immediate shock and just sort of the internalizing of seeing the valley change so drastically, so quickly, and the way people were trying to make sense of it and process it. And something struck me where I've seen so many pictures of burnt out towns at this point. And it feels so different when I see it in person. It feels so expansive and so um, really hard to process. It's almost like when you stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon and you think it's hard to comprehend the size and the scale of it. How are you thinking about it or how are you communicating what you're seeing within your district right now? My access to descriptive words is, isn't, isn't, uh, fully functioning right now. I touring the wreckage, um, the day after and, and along with, uh, actually a tour of our U S senators a few days later, you know, it's, it feels quite literally like a physical blow, a physical shock, like you would get from a physical trauma. You know, it's sort of that disorienting. And really, it took for two or three days. We are kind of wandering around in a stupor before we could regroup and start, start acting in, in, a, in a really functional way. Well, that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find out more about the organization, stories, and events mentioned in this episode. Hit us up by email at the address 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love to hear from you. I'll be back next week with my usual co-host, Joel McCower. Until next time, from all of us here at Greenbiz Group, I'm Heather Clancy. Take care and be well. This episode is sponsored by The Climate Pledge from Amazon. Take a leadership position on climate change and join a coalition of businesses driving towards a bold commitment of net zero carbon by 2040. Learn more about becoming a signatory at theclimatepledge.com. And this episode is also sponsored by MCE, the local electricity provider for 34 San Francisco Bay Area communities, offering clean energy, community benefits, and the power of choice for more than 10 years. For more information, visit mcecleanenergy.org.